still down in that sixth evil pouch of fraud in the eighth circle of hell, Dante and Virgil are going to try to get out. Well, they're going to get out, but it's going to take a struggle and it's going to take a climb. And that's where we are in the podcast, Walking with Dante. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. We are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the 24th canto of Inferno. We're at lines 22 through 45. We started out this canto with a gorgeous, almost lyric poem about a villager, a peasant, about snow and hoarfrost, about sheep, about Dante, about Virgil. Well, that was the last episode of this podcast. On and on about possible interpretations for that. This passage that we're about to come into is not as difficult, although curious for several reasons. And rather than doing what we usually do, which is a line-by-line analysis of it, we're going to look at it and then talk about some overall general concerns after a couple of comments about translation in the passage. If you want to see this passage, it's on my website, markscarbro.com. You can read it along there with my rough, yes, it's rough, English translation. It's rough because well, I don't care about the poetics. I don't care about the rhyme. I'm just trying to get the medieval Florentine as close as I can into some kind of standard modern and, dare I say, North American English. But other than that, Canto 24, lines 22 through 45. After weighing his choices for a bit and looking those ruins up and down, Virgil opened his arms wide and put them tight around me, like someone who estimates every gesture as he labors on and seems as if he assesses every move in advance. He lifted me up toward the top of one rock and was already figuring out the next crag to grab, saying, hoist yourself up to that one next, but first, Test it to make sure it can hold the likes of you. It wasn't a path for those guys in the cloaks. For we together, he so light, and I supported from below, had a hard time clambering up from one ledge to the next, and only because on this side of the ditch the slope wasn't as high as on the other side. Well, I can't say about him, but I would have been beaten. But because the evil pouches all sloped downward, toward the maw of the pit, each valley is positioned so that one side is higher than the other. Finally, we came to a spot where the last stone lies broken off the ledge above. The air had been so milked from my lungs when I got up there that I couldn't go any farther and sat right down the moment I could. That is the climb out of the sixth of the Malabolja, the sixth of the evil pouches that make up the grand landscape of fraud. Let's talk about a couple of little translation problems. And then let's talk about this passage as a whole, the arduous climb out of the sixth pit. As I said, 
a couple of textual things. Let's start with that line, it wasn't a path for those guys in the cloaks. That happens about halfway through the passage. And of course, I made it sound as if it is uh, about the hypocrites in their gilded leaden cloaks. But I have to tell you that the line is actually in the Florentine a little more aphoristic. My translation reflects my belief that the poet is primarily talking about the hypocrites below, but you can see this line as a sort of aphoristic smarty pants saying maybe something like this wasn't a path for anyone wearing a long coat you could say that about so many things in life you've clearly probably been through things i don't know the death of a loved one the um a divorce a messy problem with your children you could probably say about a lot of things it wasn't a path for anyone wearing a long coat because it would get all caught up between your legs i think that this is important to note that while I am making it reflect the leaden cloaks of the hypocrites below us, it is a pithy saying. And this begins a series of aphoristic statements that follow out of this point. And it's interesting to note that these aphorisms, pithy sayings, things you could pull out and make applicable to life as a whole in a kind of smarty pants way, these kind of sayings will start to proliferate in comedy after Virgil has been put in his place. Aphorisms are a high mark of poetic output in the Middle Ages, and that our poet now feels free enough to become aphoristic, even though this line still does refer to those guys in the pit below, but you could pull it out and put it on a page-a-day calendar. It's interesting that that happens after Virgil has been put in his place from the soothsayers all the way through to the hypocrites in the Malabolja. And a second translation thing, and it's not really a problem in the translation, it's just I want to point it out to you at the very end, when they get to the top of a bit, it says, the air had been so milked from my lungs. And the word there truly is in the Florentine, milked from my lungs. When I got up there that I couldn't go any farther and sat right down the moment I could, this is a nice little tie. As they come out of the sixth pit, there is a reference to milking, and I don't want to get vulgar here, but remember when they slide down into the sixth pit? Virgil grabs the pilgrim like a mother grabs a child fleeing from the flames. So the descent into the sixth pit begins with a maternal reference, and the end of the sixth pit ends with a milking reference mother's milk this word is mostly used of livestock mostly but there is i think a nice tie what do i want to say imagistically between the beginning and the ending of the sixth pit Dante the poet is very concerned with tying up the front of cantos to the back of cantos as well as the front of narrative sequences in the pouches with the back of narrative sequences in the pouches. And those two things don't always line up, showing you a further complexity in the poetics. Let's talk generally about this passage.
They start up this long, arduous climb, and we've talked about this. This is because the bridges are down over the sixth pit. They have fallen, and there are no ways across the top of it. You have to go down to the bottom of it and come back the other side in order to get across the sixth pit. And so Virgil starts this climb up over the ruins where a bridge clearly has fallen down. There's enough rocky uh, rubble that they can kind of climb up it slowly, one bit to the next, one crag to the next. What this represents for us, which is nicely done, is a kind of Felix Culpa, a fortunate fall. These ruins are the result of the crucifixion and the harrowing of hell. It's from the earthquake that shook the earth when Jesus died on the cross, and also the earthquake that apparently happened as hell shook when Jesus descended from the cross into limbo to pull out all of the Old Testament, the Jewish figures from limbo. That bit caused a ruin of hell, but you'll notice that the ruin is the way out, which ties it to a Felix culpa, a fortunate fall. This is a notion in Christian theology that the fall of Adam from eating that apple, and Eve, of course, from eating that apple, or as medievals would have thought, eating that pear or possibly eating that pomegranate, (laughs) from eating whatever fruit is on that tree, that fall was ultimately a Felix culpa, a fortunate fall, because it led to the coming of the Messiah and it led to the forgiveness of sins with Jesus on the cross in Christian theology. I refer you back to two episodes earlier if you have any question about my stance toward Christian theology. But in Christian theology, it is considered a Felix culpa, a fortunate fall. And this is a little bit of fortunate fall here. The ruins of hell provide the way out of the sixth pit. It's nice when there's a little textual irony, a little theological irony that gets inserted into the rather rigid theology of the poem. What else can we say about this climb. The Dantista, the now unfortunately late Dantista Robert Derling, claims that Virgil exhibits the four cardinal virtues in this passage. Let me explain this just to be careful so that we know what we're talking about. There are seven theological traditional virtues in medieval Christian theology. Three of them are distinctly Christian virtues, that is, faith, hope, and love. And the other four virtues are considered the cardinal virtues. These are the virtues that you could have even if you didn't know anything about Christianity. They are prudence, fortitude, temperance, and justice. And Derling claims that if you look at this passage closely, you can watch Virgil making a play for all of these virtues. He's selecting the right crag, thus he's prudent. He's got a lot of fortitude. He's carrying on, soldiering on, pushing Dante up from below. He's got a lot of temperance. He's being careful about what he chooses and a lot of justice because in the end, not only justice about choosing the right crag, but justice about pulling the pilgrim out of this pit and back on the journey that is divinely uh, sanctioned. Uh, Don't think justice just as making the right choice. Think about it in a more divine context. 
doing kind of the will of the universe and making the wrong right, the wrong here of falling down into the pit, making it right. If Durling is right, then this might be, and this is not Durling's point, it's my point, this might be a way to rehabilitate Virgil in comedy. Perhaps having so put Virgil through his paces ever since the soothsayers, having him correct the Aeneid, having him say that don't even read the Aeneid because it's got an error in it, having him be, oh, what do I want to say, seduced, caught by the demons in Baratry, and finally having him been humiliated by the mendicants walking around the pouch of hypocrisy. After all of that, maybe this climb out is a rehabilitation of Virgil. That is, Virgil, while not a Christian figure, still and nonetheless exhibits the cardinal virtues, the virtues that even pagans can have. And in this this passage, we find a kind of acting out of those dear footprints that end the 23rd canto. We see that the poet still honors Virgil despite all the backhanding. What else can we say about this climb out of the sixth pit? We have got more corporeal problems. They just seem to dog us like crazy. Easy, don't they? I mean, here they're climbing out. Virgil opens his arms wide and out they climb from the pit. Um, he then does his whole estimation of every gesture he labors on. He assesses every move. He lifts the pilgrim up toward the top of one rock, figuring out the next crag, telling the pilgrim to take care, test it before you put your weight on it. All of that up from below. And it says it's not a path for those guys in the cloaks or it's not a path for anyone wearing a long coat. For we together... He's so light, and I, supported from below, had a hard time clambering up from one ledge to the next. There are those corporeal problems. There's Virgil and his footprints. He would be light as a shade. He would take up no weight as a shade, or he shouldn't take up any weight as a shade. Dante is yet somehow supported from below. I mean, you know, you can picture Virgil with his hand on the pilgrim's butt pushing him up. How does that work? Wouldn't his hand go right through him? I mean, wouldn't Virgil just kind of pass through Dante as a shade? Again, something in the poet knows Virgil is a shade. Virgil is not out of breath at the top of this climb. Virgil is not grabbing onto the ledges and having to test them against his weight. But something in the poet also wants Virgil to be substantive. And I use that word in the way that Thomas Aquinas would use that word. Substantive as in taking part in the properties of matter. Virgil is able to push Dante up. Virgil is able to make footprints. All of this tells us that there is something in the poet that needs Virgil to be substantive in ways that perhaps no other shade needs to be substantive. I would again argue that this is part of the larger problem of the poetics in the poem. I would also argue that this is part of the poet's stance toward Virgil. Virgil is a shade. Virgil is damned. 
Yet Virgil lives in the place in hell that isn't much like the rest of hell, limbo. Virgil does seem to have substance. Virgil does seem to be more solid than many other shades. Virgil is able to pick up gobs of muck from the floor of hell and throw them into Cerberus's mouth. Virgil is able then, if he can pick up those gobs of muck, Virgil would be able perhaps to move the stones as he walks? Not really. It never occurs, and only Dante the Pilgrim moves the stones, and yet how can Virgil pick up muck and throw it in Cerberus's mouth? I'm telling you, there is a way that Dante needs Virgil to be, how do I say, realer, (laughs) more real. This is clearly the way that many people find themselves in a position to a dead figure who they greatly admire. This is the way that many people in religion operate toward the founders of that religion, whether it be Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha. There's a way in which if you put your faith, your trust, your being, your craft, your art, your aesthetic impulse, your morality, if you place it in someone else who is now long gone, you will ultimately find yourself facing the need to make them more substantial. Your grandfather, your grandmother, your father, your mother, your, your late brother, I don't know who it is for you, but there is a way in which you will resist the final nihilism of that character. And it is human. It's not wrong. It's human. It is what we do. We have to try to rehabilitate the gone, the past, the the annihilated. It is one of the most human things we do. Let's compare this sequence with another very similar sequence. Remember back in Canto 19, they descend into the pit of the Simoniacs, and there they find Pope Nicholas III upside down in his hole. Then they ascend out of that pit, and that's the first time they go down to a pit. We've now had the second time with the hypocrites. Let's compare those two sequences. In Canto 19, Virgil just picks up the pilgrim and down they go. And when it comes to the end of Canto 19, lines 124 through 133, Virgil just picks up the pilgrim and up they go up the sides of the pit. It's not this arduous climb out of this deep pit that it is here. In fact, the way down into that pit with Pope Nicholas III is really easy, apparently. I mean, Virgil just picks up the pilgrim, lines 43 through 45 of Canto 19, and down they go. Here in the sixth pit, Virgil grabs a hold of the pilgrim, and down they slide with Virgil as the toboggan to the bottom of the pit to get away from the demons. And then when they come out of it, after Virgil is finally finally humiliated. It is an arduous and difficult climb. Might we say something here about the poetics? If Virgil has been put in his place by the poet Dante, and if now Dante, the poet, has to have a different relationship with Virgil, is it not interesting that the climb out of the sixth pit is a joint 
effort. It's not just Virgil grabbing the pilgrim and down they go or grabbing the pilgrim and up they go. Rather, this seems like a team effort to get out. And might this show a difference between the two of them and Furthermore, might this explain poetically, allegorically, why at the end of this passage, the air had been milked from my lungs? Because you know what? If you are not going to model your poetic vision on that of a poetic master from the past, if you're going to try to set out on your own and do this once you have, in fact, put that poetic father Hmm, Harold Bloom, anxiety of influence, put that poetic father in his place, then you are going to get tired out. The air is going to get milked from your lungs. You are going to have to sit down. Might this say something about the arduous difficulty of writing the poem once you decide you can't base it solely on the vision of your poetic master. Because although Virgil's vision of the afterlife controls so much of early Inferno, by this point, we are leaving Virgil far behind. I mean, we technically left him behind at the walls of Dis, and his vision behind at the walls of Dis, but he's still been rather there, in and out there as well, a kind of modeling figure, even with references to his poetry. But from here on out, Virgil becomes less of a modeling function and more of a warning and a father figure, but we're going to have to wait for the next episode of this podcast to get to that. Given that, that means the poet is having to do it on his own, or at least do it in tandem with his poetic master, which means it's a lot harder, which can explain this passage, that Virgil weighs the choices, opens his arm wide, puts them around the pilgrim. So Virgil's still there. Virgil's still present. He's still part of the journey. It isn't that he's been cast aside, but now they do it together like someone who estimates every gesture as he labors on as and seems as if he assesses every move in advance. Virgil lifted me up toward the top of one rock and was already figuring out the next crack to grab, saying, hoist yourself up. The path was difficult. He was light. I was supported from below. And finally, we get to the top of this and the pilgrim even says listen i can't say anything about virgil but i would have been beaten if i'd been doing this on my own that's the point there's a tandem relationship now sure doing this on your own is really hard and eventually once we hit purgatorio and then especially when we hit paradiso dante the poet will have to do it on his own but at this point he's getting his poetic legs and he's figuring it out how to do it on his own which partially involves the strange poetics of this passage and that's my last point if you look at the medieval Florentine here, and even if you look at my translation on my website, markscarborough.com, you will see that a lot of the lines here are enjammed. What does that mean? It's a very technical poetic term. That means that the line of poetry does not end at its end end you know you've got a line running along and it doesn't come to a natural stop but rather it wraps around to the next line for example when i read these lines to you these are fully enjammed he lifted me up toward the top of one rock and was already figuring out the next crab 
to grab, saying, those are those enjambments. We're going over poetic lines there in my translation. And the Florentine is going over poetic lines too. Dante, the poet, is freer to make use of enjambment in these passages that is not respecting the end of a poetic line, but making it carry over. There could be a way that there's a thematic going on with so much enjambment about the sin that's ahead of us. That is, well, I don't want to give it too much away, but that is stealing something from one line to go to the next line. There could be, and I've seen that commentary made, but there can also be a way in which the poet is feeling a kind of freedom because once you learn that you don't have to end a line of poetry at the end of the line, you enter a kind of poetic freedom. Listen, if you were if you wrote poetry back in elementary school, when you were a kid, you undoubtedly wrote, you know, poems where everything probably, unless you were terribly precocious, you wrote poetry that, that each end of the line was the end of the thought. You know, it comes to the end and it stops and you got the next line and it stops and you know, But if you were to go on in poetry and you were to take poetry classes and you were starting to develop a poetic voice, you would start doing a lot of enjambments where the line wraps around to the next line. And the break in the lines is a function of the form, but not necessarily the meaning. Or to put it really, really high level, it's a function of the structure and not the semantics. Just say that when you start to lose the notion that the end of the line is somehow a stop sign for you, you have come to a firmer grasp of poetics and that the form does not control your voice, but the form should be used to carry your voice. And we might be able to see that starting to happen here. And again, after Virgil is put in his place. It's all so very fascinating. The development, now, finally, we're really starting to see it, the development of the pilgrim into the poet. That is the thematics of comedy, how a pilgrim becomes a poet. Or, there's one other bit, how a pilgrim poet becomes a prophet. But that's all way ahead of us down the line. And to get there, you've got to subscribe to this podcast. If you don't mind, please give it a rating if you enjoy it. I would most appreciate that. It helped me so much to figure out that I'm not alone on this journey, but walking with others. Thanks for all the conversation on Twitter. Thanks for all the DMs that have gone on. Thanks for all the emails that come back and forth through my website, markscarborough.com. I appreciate hearing from you. I'm thrilled that we're on this journey together. And we have still got more to go. We're not quite done with the climb out of the sixth pit, but more of that on the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. Mm-hmm.